previously on Hacker Valley Blue. Who am I and why did I agree to take on a role of a CISO? When I looked at other people working as chief information security officers, I thought, why would they want to do that? It seems like it's a thankless job. I can be cooking or, or sleeping. At that very moment, someone is actually using something that I helped create. This is the Hacker Valley Studio podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity. Time spent identifying devices that are missing endpoint agents with known vulnerabilities that are unmanaged and need updates. Time spent identifying cloud instances that aren't being scanned and that are misconfigured. Time spent gathering asset data. Time was the enemy of cybersecurity until Axonius. By connecting to existing data sources, customers get a comprehensive asset inventory, understand security gaps, and automatically validate and enforce security policies. Check them out by visiting axonius.com. Thank you, Axonius, for sponsoring this episode. Are you a fan of chaos? If you are, this episode is gonna be a treat. We have Aaron Reinhardt and Jamie Dickin, these two are the authors of an upcoming O'Reilly book, Security Chaos Engineering. We chat with them about what does chaos engineering mean and how does this concept apply to security? I don't think it gets much better than speaking to this dynamic duo. Let's jump right into this episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again, repping Hacker Valley Blue. Insecurity on the blue side of the house, there's often chaos. In this episode, we brought in two exceptional guests that are no stranger to chaos. In fact, they've identified ways to engineer for chaos. In the studio, we have Aaron Reinhardt, CTO and founder at Verica. We also have Jamie Dickin, manager of Applied Security at Cardinal Health. These two are also authors of an upcoming book, Security Chaos Engineering. If you haven't read that book that's already out, highly recommend to check it out. I'm really excited to jump into this topic. Aaron, Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Jamie, Aaron, I had the honor of sitting a panel with you both talking about chaos engineering, something I'm super passionate about. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Let's start with you, Jamie. As you said, I am the manager of applied security at Cardinal Health. And what that means is that I lead a team focused on the security control validation Really, my background isn't your traditional cybersecurity role. I spent the first 10 years of my career in software development. So I was focused on building systems and creating new features that are used by hospitals and physicians' offices. And what always really nagged me was the fact that I thought that I was building these features that would add tons of value to healthcare. But I knew in the back of my mind that it just took one breach or one incident to undo a lot of that value. So that's really what led me to cybersecurity and 
the on being on the proactive side to figure out how do I protect the systems just like the ones that I used to build and make sure that the value that we're creating doesn't go undone. Fantastic. How about you, Aaron? Prior to uh, co-founding Verica with Casey Rosenthal, Casey was the, he was the creator of Chaos Engineering there at Netflix. Um, I was the chief security architect at United Health Group. So kind of very similar, I guess, path as Jamie there. But at the company, I led um, sort of a couple of quote-unquote digital transformations for security, the DevSecOps transformation and the cloud. And uh, we actually wrote the first open source tool that applied Netflix's Chaos Engineering to security called Chaos Slinger. And that was sort of the beginning of my journey in this space. Prior to that, I have a background, obviously, as well as um, NASA. I actually worked at NASA Safety and Reliability Engineering. So it, I didn't really make the connection of my history to what I'm doing now uh, for a long time. But uh, sometimes, uh, you know, that creeps up on us. Let's go ahead and set the stage and talk about chaos engineering. I talk to people and I feel like some folks don't quite get it just yet. Would love to hear from your perspective what chaos engineering is, how it can help us, and how it's different than, say, the offensive side, red teaming, pen testing, and the like. Uh, let's start with you, Aaron. So what chaos engineering is, it's the technique of proactively introducing turbulent conditions into a distributed system to try to determine the conditions by which the system or service will fail before it actually fails. So, so to simplify it, so typically, how does a system, companies, you'll hear the term legacy system, right? That usually means it's business critical, right? And it's usually, it rarely has fail, uh, it really fails. It's, uh, the engineers are fairly competent, you know, they're confident in how the system operates. But the question is, is was that uh, system always so stable? Were the engineers always so confident in its performance? Uh, and typically, it becomes stable through a series of unforeseen events, right? Like we learn about what we didn't know about the system by the system telling us through surprises, incidents, outages. So what we're trying to do with chaos engineering uh, is we're trying to trying to learn about the system without experiencing the pain of an outage or, or, or an incident. So the stability for legacy systems was kind of what, what I was describing earlier was is kind of uh, is earned through that pain, a lot of times in terms of the customer encountering that pain. But so what we're doing with chaos engineering, just as a general discipline, not just for security, we're trying to proactively ensure our understanding of the system is correct by asking it the question. Um, under these conditions, does the system still function the way it was supposed to? It's the same hypothesis or premonition for security. Under X conditions, does the security control still fire? Under X conditions, does the security still uh, detect or protect? And it's one of the differences between like a breach and attack simulation tool or red team or purple team type of, we're not introducing a, like a Node.js mass assignment attack or, or, a, or a click jacking attack to try to determine, we're not sending a bunch of data to the system. We're introducing one tiny failure condition in the system to try to ask a simple question uh, because I have found the best chaos experiments are the very simple ones. And what's interesting is I've also never seen a chaos engineering experiment for security or availability succeed the first time. Usually that means our understanding of our system or security is usually almost always wrong. And what about you, Jamie? Is there anything you'd like to add there? We talk and Aaron spoke about how chaos engineering, it's really proactively testing your systems before reality does. But the application to the security space is huge because if you take the security lens, you're essentially proactively testing your security before an adversary does. And in security, we, we like to talk a lot about, you know, you can't protect what you don't see or you can't protect what you don't manage. 
Well, I like to also say you can't protect what you don't understand. And chaos engineering and security chaos engineering is all about, just like Aaron said, learning about what your systems actually do and how they actually behave. Later, I'm sure we'll talk through what some of the use cases for security chaos engineering are, but I look at it this way. Say that you have five controls that you believe are in place that are going to protect you from an adversary. If all of them are broken, well, then you know, then somebody can identify that pretty easily through a pen test because they were able to get a payload from part from zone A to zone B. That's that's fast and that's very good information. But with security chaos engineering, our lens is different. It's not that adversarial attack. It's actually trying to understand how are each of our controls behaving. So again, in that example, say you have five controls, four are broken, but one is working. A pen test is going to tell you that, all right, we couldn't get through, so we're good. Well, security chaos engineering can help you understand that if that final one breaks, that can be catastrophic. And so we're trying to get ahead of that before you get to the point where you only have one link left before an adversary can get in. When I think of chaos engineering, it sounds extremely important. It sounds like you all have experienced production systems going down in the past. From my experience working with many organizations, I would help organizations in their production environment. And I would notice a lot of the times that they wouldn't have a dev environment that they could really perform the same test on from an engineering perspective, from a chaos perspective, because these two environments, the dev and prod environments, are set up differently. It, it almost seems as though you would have to do this chaos engineering in a production environment in order to really see your hypothesis come correct or need to be revised. What's been your experience with, with that, Jamie? Are you doing this chaos engineering in a live environment? We are at times, yes. And so I, I think there is a myth with security chaos engineering that it necessarily involves breaking things in production. You know, I think that's one of the biggest challenges that people have when trying to adopt this because almost no organization is going to be cool with you making the proposal like, hey, I'm going to do this thing that can potentially cause an outage, but it's okay because it's proactive and I'm learning. There are still ways that you can experiment in production without going from zero to a hundred right away. So for example, like you said, you may have different controls in your non-prod environment and your prod environment. When it's appropriate and when you can, sure, it's always great to test in non-prod first. And it can actually be a harbinger to give you some kind of indication about how prod might respond. But there are still things you can do in production. So for example, say you have a security control that monitors for public storage buckets and closes them. Well, in your production environment, you can actually perform an experiment here. You could create a brand new storage bucket and you can watch and observe, does that bucket automatically get closed? Does it get closed on the timeline that you think it's going to? You can do other things like if you have a process in place to monitor for, say, unapproved firewall rules, well then 
in a low risk environment, certainly, uh, and you definitely want to undo this before you before you leave a gaping hole. But somehow you can have a prescribed test where you just quickly turn it on. You can test. Do you even see? Are you allowed to do it? Do you see this in your logs? Does anybody respond to it and follow the playbook that you think is in place? And then again, you turn that off, but you've learned something. And in neither one of these experiments am I taking an application and saying, hey, you know what? I'm just going to kill some of the underlying infrastructure and potentially risk having my customers be disrupted. So this is where I would start. And certainly once you get mature, Sure, go the whole nine yards if you believe that you have the, the safety in place to be able to do that. I think that that helps speak to the fact that some of these can be done in production. Some of them should be done in production if your controls are different. But at the end of the day, you don't necessarily need to immediately cause customer impacts and risk that. I would imagine, Erin, that you have a lot of experience when it comes to being on the side where you've experience that customer impact where you've seen something go very wrong and you've even written a book about it you've started a company that helps organizations with it what was the story that really put you on the path to start tackling this problem at scale where did you start and what was that that story like that made you go down this journey well you guys are really good with questions (laughs) that's a really good question (laughs) um so it, it all started through experimentation, right? When I was a United Health Group, I was latched onto this thing called DevOps, and then I guess it was rugged DevOps where I started, and and then uh, I started sort of changing the way the company thinks about how we build software. And we hired our first SRE, and they started telling me about this thing called chaos engineering. So my entire career, I've been a builder, right? So like, think about security in terms of engineering, you know, and I always have in my mind, I look at security as an engineering problem. Uh, and one of my biggest problems was, as an architect, I never knew whether or not that the controls and, and the way I, I had it envisioned and configured in the recommendations I provided to, to teams, I never knew whether or not I got implemented correctly or not, you know, because placement matters, configuration matters. And I was passionate about my craft. I needed a mechanism to jump the gun a, a little bit. So jump, you know, jump the process and ask the computer questions. Security is somewhat of an emergent property of the system. You know, we look at security oftentimes in, in a particular state of a thing. Well, you know, there are lots of pieces in our modern systems now. And when all those things come together and start interacting, does the security manifest the way it's supposed to, right? Because if you think about it, there are many different groups of people in a, in a modern application that are constantly changing it. And they're ch- and, but are the security controls and apparatuses changing along with it? Because security is a context-dependent thing. So at United Health Group, what we ended up doing was start off with a series of um, basic experiments we wanted to run. So the experiment that we first ran was it's actually Chaos Slinger's first example experiment. It was called Port Slinger, but it's an unauthorized or misconfigured port change in AWS. So we, we wrote this tool it would uh, sort of randomly pick an EC2 uh, security group and it would open or close a port that wasn't supposed to be open or closed. And for some odd reason, so this, this, this can manifest in a lot of ways. It could be that a software engineer didn't understand flow, network flow, right? It's not intuitive, right? It could have been that the change was configured wrong. It could have been that the change was created out of band. It could have been that somebody filled out a ticket incorrectly for the change and put the wrong ports or 
you know, this kind of thing, even though we've been solving for firewall for 30 plus years, it's still, I don't know why this still happens, but it does. Uh, but anyway, we started introducing these changes in our Amazon uh, environments. And what our expectation was uh, as a security team is that the firewalls would immediately detect and block that kind of activity and be a non-issue. But actually, it turns out it only happened about 60% of the time. That was mind-boggling. Right, uh, and it turned out it was actually a drift issue between our commercial and our non-commercial environments, because we were very new to the cloud at the at, to AWS at the time. It informed us that like, hmm, this this control isn't working as well as we thought it was. The second thing we learned was is that the cloud native configuration management tool we had caught and blocked it every time. Something we really didn't expect to happen happened. Uh, and the third thing we expected was log data to come from both tool sets to to correlate an alert to our security operations center. That happened. But when the when the SOC analyst got the alert, they couldn't tell which AWS it came from. Uh, remember, very still very new to AWS. You know, as an engineer, you can say, well, I can map back an IP address to figure out where it came from. Uh, but that could take 30 minutes. That could take three hours if, if, if SNAT is part of the equation. Uh, but like United Health Group's the largest healthcare company in the world. If, if they're down for a minute, it costs a lot of money. But you have to remember, during this whole process I've just described here, there was never an outage. There was never, we weren't, we were discovering this when people were freaking out, right? When people were worried about it being a breach, right? We discovered it proactively. We added metadata information to the alerts. We were able to fix the drift issue with the firewall. And we were able to have additional context to how effective the configuration management tool was. We learned all these great things when there was no crisis. That's the power in this stuff. Aaron, let me take you down memory lane for a moment. I remember being at Marine Corps training and they take you through all sorts of scenarios in order for you to trust and be aware of whatever you're dealing with. From a gear perspective, when, when you're going down that rappel wall, you're trusting your gear, you're several feet up in the air and you're, it looks like if you fall, you definitely, definitely hurt yourself, but you'd learn to trust your gear by testing. And then even when you're with a team and you have those team engagements, you're learning how to trust your team and learning what strengths and weaknesses your team have. And even yourself, you're understanding who you are, how far you can push yourself in any given endeavor. I'd love to hear a little bit of the, the philosophies that have changed in you since you've lived in this world of chaos engineering from a cybersecurity perspective. I've never actually put that together, Chris, but you're probably onto something, you know, uh, the Marine Corps, man, we, for uh, any operation we do, we test everything over and over and over, inventory over and over and over. We function test everything to ensure that we're ready. When the time comes, we're ready to function and do the things we're designed to do. There might be something to that in this is that, you know, I want to ensure that things that I've planned to happen, happen and, and things are, and we're ready and we're prepared. You know, there's that preparedness aspect. There is isn't. You know, there's probably a correlation there. Probably definitely is a correlation. Sometimes my Marine Corps past, I don't realize how much it has influenced me as a professional and as a grown-up. I would like to take a second and talk about impact. You all have gone through this journey of building out a book on security chaos engineering. And I'm sure you've provided impact in your organizations. You've gotten feedback from readers for the book that's already out. Uh, Jamie, what kind of impact have you seen within maybe your organization, sister organizations that you've helped, and also feedback from your readers? Sure. So the biggest impact really came once we understood how, where does security chaos engineering fit into the bigger security picture? 
it's not about just being a part of the the latest and greatest techniques and having the excitement of doing something that's cutting edge, but security chaos engineering at the end of the day, it's useless unless what you've learned drives change. And so if you think about how a security gap gets remediated, you know, we start off just blissfully ignorant of the fact that we may have a gap. But if somebody asks a question and we decide let's let's do an experiment, let's learn what our reality is, that experiment gives you the data to have the conversation to actually be able to fix the security gap. And so if you are taking a look at a control and you run some experiments to understand what its effectiveness is and you can you have an understanding of all right, we're we're covered in this environment, but not in this environment, you can present that. And that essentially creates a business case to be able to get that gap fixed in your organization, whether it's something that the security team owns or whether that's a peer organization. You start off with those requirements. You are able to get that project prioritized because you have that business case. And then from there on out, you've actually moved the security needle at your company because you have fixed a security gap. You found it not in a breach situation. It, it was proactive. Um, and really putting it into that mindset has been what has just really worked and what's really proven the value of proactively testing. What I think is really funny, you were asking Aaron about testing in the Marine Corps. Coming from a software development background, we test all the time. We would not deploy anything to production without four or five layers of different tests. In software development, we would write our unit tests so that every time you committed code, you made sure that new code didn't break old code. You had integration tests that we would run nightly that would say, all right, you know what? When all these pieces actually work together, they still work correctly. You, you test before you get to production. You test in production when you have smoke tests. Testing in production and testing what our systems do is not a novel concept, but figuring out, applying that to security controls and then figuring out how do you create those same types of processes within the security context? It, like I said, that's really where you move the needle with security chaos engineering. Speaking of testing and production, I'd love to hear a story of chaos engineering gone wrong. You start out with the best of intent, you go through something and something dramatic happens in the environment, and then you have to bring it back to healthy. I'd like to ask either one of you to tell us a story about chaos engineering gone wrong. So this is not actually my story. This is Casey's story, but it's my favorite story in terms of the, your question. Casey, you know, because he's kind of the creator behind chaos engineering there at Netflix, he was invited to all different kinds of healthcare companies and banks and and um, the large retail in the early days of chaos engineering. And he tells me a story about he went out to this, it was a large bank and he did a tech talk at the company and they said, uh, we're going to do our first game day, which is sort of a manual live fire, uh, human driven chaos engineering exercise. And what the, what the hypothesis was, they were going to bring down a node in Kafka, Apache Kafka. Uh, and their expectation was, is that a new node would come up and it'd get rebalanced and get repointed to from Zookeeper. And it would, there wouldn't be an outage, right? The Zookeeper uh, would keep Kafka alive. They told Casey, hey, we're a bank, so we have real money on the line. So we can't do chaos engineering in production. We're going to do it on non-prod. 
So they went forth, they scheduled the exercise in the afternoon, and they, they actually inject, they actually brought down the Kafka node. Prod went down. So they brought down the node in dev, but prod went down. Right. So like they hadn't realized because systems engineering is messy. I mean, we love to think of it as a very simple thing. Like we got a simple 3D diagram of our system and we got resources. We've got teams for it and we got it organized into 10 different services. But like it's never that clean. It's super messy. Right. And what they hadn't realized is they they had nonprofit was pointing to prod. Uh, they they didn't know that, <laughs> so they discovered they discovered that they still had pointers to prod when they brought down non prod. It was a great learning exercise for them. That like wow, you know we had we had this connection to production for our non prod environments that we shouldn't have had. In a way, it was a learning exercise. But like here's the thing: when they did this exercise, everyone was there to bring prod back up. Right, everyone, the people that were involved in this were the people that ran Kafka. They were the people that that were in, in charge of incident management. They, um, you know, it's kind of like when you do. A, I'm originally from like Missouri, right? And a lot of times people burn fields and things like that. And if you don't light a match and burn a field, uh, you know, usually farmers will do that to uh, replenish the field of nutrients. And but like you bring the, the EMTs out there, the firemen's out there, the everyone is there to ensure that what the problem goes awry were. We, we can uh, quickly fix it. And that, that was the case. But I just think that's an amazing example of the value of this stuff is like, we're kind of able to learn something, but you really didn't know that existed. I don't have an exciting story nearly as entertaining <laughs> as that one, but I think not only can the execution of chaos engineering go wrong, but one of the key challenges that we have is sometimes the selling of security chaos engineering goes wrong. And mm. so if you come to a team and you say, hey, you know what? I want to experiment with your stuff. And I, so first of all, I need access to it and I'm going to conduct this experiment. Just trust me. You're not going to get a very good reaction at first. So first of all, another team comes in thinking that you may be technical audit who's going to come in, point out all their flaws, dump a bunch of work in their lap. Uh, it, it also can come off at times like, well, hey, you're the security team and you're asking for additional access and you don't seem like you care about availability if you're framing this as an experiment. And similarly, mm. if you're trying to sell up to the chain with your leaders, if you come in saying, yep, I just want to experiment and learn, you are going <laughs> to look like you do not care about the <laughs> ultimate end user and that you don't care about disruption. And so I think it's really critical to frame security chaos engineering as even though you are trying to instrument chaos, you are not trying to inflict chaos on your company. What you're trying to do is you're trying to be proactive, learn about what could possibly go wrong before a breach actually happens. And sometimes the results of your experiments aren't even necessarily going to create more work immediately for the people implementing controls, but you may end up learning, hey, yes, we have a we have a security gap, but really we don't have a good strategy or a good policy in this area. And it it may shine a light on other organizational challenges that you have. When you navigate security chaos engineering correctly and you frame it as a disciplined experiment and you understand what your outcomes could be, that helps ease a lot of the natural defenses of teams who already have a lot on their plate um, and who do ultimately report 
or have to account for the availability and uptime of systems. This makes me think of quite a few things, but when I think of really implementing any new strategy in cybersecurity, I think of the fact that it takes a village to make something happen. It might take a village in order to adopt a new cybersecurity practice, but I would also imagine the same for implementing security chaos engineering. What are some of the characteristics that a team needs to have in order to take on this type of endeavor from a personality perspective and also a skills perspective? For our team, our story was very interesting. And Aaron, I'm going to steal a little bit of your history. So let me know because our history is actually intertwined. So (laughs) the way that security chaos engineering got started at Cardinal Health is that my former boss, Rob Duhart, he's at Google now. He, he was the director of security architecture and his challenge was that his team could come up with the best standards or project designs, security patterns, what have you. But At the end of the day, the effectiveness of his team or the perceived effectiveness was really based on other teams doing what his architects advised. And as you can imagine, that's not comfortable when all of a sudden you disengage at the planning phase. We all know that things change in terms of projects, either timelines or budgets run out and scope gets cut or maybe engineers didn't understand the intent of the security controls or what they were designing, or maybe they just misconfigured it or made a mistake, whether that was during the project implementation or whether that was in the run support months or years down the line. And we didn't want to have the security architecture team say, yep, we did all this. We have good security on paper, but not in practice. And so Rob started to to do some research about, well, how do I validate the security patterns in reality versus just on paper? And that's when he started to do some reading about chaos engineering. And Aaron, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like really the conversation was Rob reached out to you based on a LinkedIn post to talk about this idea that you had. Um, And we got to the point where we said, Yes, we want to implement security chaos engineering. I remember in Rob's business case, he actually took some of the content of some of your slides about test your security before somebody else does. We talked about the cost of a data breach report that shows year after year that 48 to 49% of breaches are caused by essentially the failure of our controls, whether that's human error, misconfiguration, or, or what have you. And so after Rob had Rob and Aaron had chatted, the question really became, well, how do we do this? And that's when Rob uh, reached out to me. Aaron, was there, you might, you actually have more color on some of the origin story at my own company than I do. Do you have anything else first? You're bringing back memories of, I was actually at RSA. So RSA is crazy. Rob calls me. He got my number. He calls me. So I'm like, uh, he starts asking all these questions. I'm like, uh, you know, I, I don't have all your answers, right? Like, you know, what's funny is like a lot of people will come to me, you know, ask me, can you do it? Can you use it for this? Can you use it for that? I'm like, you know, just because I sort of started this doesn't mean I know all the ways you can use it. And Rob had it was just great ideas. You want to do this, want to do that. I'm like, you know, we have got to sit down. We got to figure this out. It was it was you and Rob that really brought it forward to Cardinal Health. It's just an amazing story. Yeah. And so it was funny because Rob had told me, he said, 
you know, I have this idea for this team and I want somebody with a software development background who has been a builder to help lead this up and figure out what it means. And so I, I joined his team about two years ago, basically with the mission of figure out how to make this come to life. And so the first thing I had to do was staff a team. And to me, really having a multidisciplined and diverse team was critical to this. So among the people that I ended up hiring, I, I obviously had a software development background, but we ended up with collective expertise in network security, systems architecture, security tooling, uh, privacy, cloud, and others. And really having a team that has this diverse background lets us do a couple of things. When we first started out, and I know this isn't the best analogy, having people with so many different areas of expertise, they probably have some really good hypotheses about where the skeletons in the closet are and what those are. And so we could help kind of prioritize what some of our validations and our experiments would look like. And then after that, we realized that to be palatable to a Fortune 20 healthcare company, we needed to have something that was a disciplined and repeatable process. I like to tell people that, you know, Cardinal Health, especially in a pandemic, does not have a cavalier attitude about what we do in production that can impact our customers and patients. So it's actually because of the fact that we don't have a cavalier attitude that it really drove us, like I said, to have this disciplined, repeatable process. We knew that when we knew that whenever we were looking for things, first we had to find things that were critically important for the company to solve. It, it did us no good to just get access to everything, write up a bunch of security issues, and then decide, you know what, these are theoretical, these are best practices. So we had to find things that were critically important. But we also wanted to make sure that when we took a look, we could find what was our security posture across our enterprise. We didn't want to just look at one place at a time and say, oh, there's a problem. And then later in the future, identify the same problem somewhere else. We wanted to have that big picture. And we re what we really cared about was that if we found something and we drove a remediation project to fix it, we didn't want that to go undone just days or months after all of that effort. And so we built a process around that we called continuous verification and validation. Um, it, it's pretty simple uh, when you think about it. One is identify the control that you want to validate. Two is identify what are those benchmarks or what are those standards. We like to borrow heavily from our security architecture team or talk to other stakeholders if we don't have things that are documented. So that way we, we understand what is it that we're looking for? What do we expect? And we set the tone that if we find that something doesn't meet these expectations, it is worth fixing and we need to fix it. Next, we do the fun part of creating our experiments. Uh, sometimes these can be actual activities um, or other times we work just taking a look at what some of our configurations actually are. Even though that doesn't necessarily seem like an exciting chaos engineering experiment, really whatever you can do to learn about the effectiveness and the realities of your security controls is an experiment. 
um, after that, once we have, once we've completed our experiment, we take all of that data and we create dashboards. So we know what our real time security posture is. And then we build in that continuous monitoring and alerting. And if anything later than reopens, we're automatically looking for it. So we can identify that quickly and drive it to remediation so that we don't have a lingering gap that we don't know about. I'm glad you mentioned your team. In fact, the team that's there at Cardinal Health uh, belongs to one of our mastermind groups and also is a, a personal friend of mine that I check in with at least once a month, and that's Samara Williams. And then you started talking a bit about Rob Duhart. I met Rob Duhart uh, about two years ago, and I was introduced to Rob by Charles Nuatu. How crazy is it that this world of cybersecurity is so interconnected? I'd love to hear like from a, a networking perspective, not computer networking, but social networking. How has that played a role in both of your careers in chaos engineering? It is crazy because a lot of the people that have been on the show, I'm super intimate and are very close with, you know, including Charles and Rob. And, and uh, so Charles was one of the first people after I wrote Chaos Slinger and I started, I was kind of this black sheep in chaos engineering. People were like, what is this guy doing? With Netflix, Netflix invited me out. They're like, what are you doing? Like, how are you applying this to security? And then uh, I remember Jason sitting in the room with Jason Chan. I know you know Jason. And Jason, yep. Jason's like, you chaos engineering for security? At the same time, I'm at Casey. Casey's like, how, how, how do you apply this? Like, it just, it was a weird, it was a weird discussion to be able to be explaining chaos engineering to the security team at Netflix, it just it was surreal. That same trip when I was out there, one of the former chaos people in chaos engineering at Netflix, Bruce Wong, introduced me to this guy named Charles Nwatu. And so Charles and I got together. We started, we just, we sat down for coffee for a couple hours, two hours turned into three, three turned into four. And we're, we're talking about, Car Charles was the, the CISO at uh, Stitch Fix. Charles is just a, a really brilliant man. He, um, he had this premonition, this idea. So he wanted to take security chaos engineering to do less better. He he always struggled with building security programs uh, throughout his career that uh, we do so much, but we do very little of it well, right? And his focus was, is like, how do we do less but better, right? So that, so he saw chaos engineering in general as a mechanism to validate what we're actually doing is actually working. Because if not, why do it? It was a really interesting uh, journey. But uh, I will tell you though, like I've met most of the people I know in Silicon Valley. I don't know anyone else if they had a similar experience through social media, and most of it Twitter. It's weird to say that, but like, you know, uh, that's how I met most people. So social networking has been a key component of it. I mean, obviously, you know, you meet up, you'll chat, you'll connect virtually. Uh, and then, um, and this is everybody from like, from Jason Chan to John Allspaugh, one of the creators of DevOps at Etsy, uh, to you name it. I mean, I it's a super powerful tool. It really, I think people uh, sometimes don't realize that these people want to meet you as much as you want to meet them. They want to share story and context. And it's just, it, to me, it's been a rewarding, like, rewarding process. And I encourage people, I tell people my cell phone is out there on the internet. My, all my information is out there. Contact me, reach out to me. I do want to talk to you, but very few people actually really do. And I'd love to spending time with people and helping them. And, and just, I don't think people know I'm serious about that. And there's someone out there right now that's listening to this podcast and they're thinking chaos engineering is the future. I want to get started. I'd like to hear from both of you. What is some ways that someone can get started with chaos engineering today? Let's start with you, Jamie. 
First, I would definitely recommend checking out that O'Reilly report on security chaos engineering. It is free. It is located at, um, if, if anybody wants to get a copy, uh, Verica, Aaron's company, sponsored the book. So it's verica.io slash SCE dash book. And that's going to give you a really good understanding of the basics of security chaos engineering. And it has a lot of other use cases. It goes into my use case much more in depth. And then Capital One has their use case in there and several other companies. It's not even just limited to the US. So it's really interesting to be able to see all of those different stories and have something resonate with you. And like I said, learn the basics. The next really is trying to understand what are some simple, controllable, and low-impact experiments that you could execute today? I, I think another one of the myths of chaos engineering is that you have to have a dedicated team and you have to have significant business investment and you have to have money for tools and all this other kind of stuff. But really, in some of the experiments we talked about earlier, just popping open an S3 bucket and seeing what happens or taking a look at how your solutions are actually configured you can do that and you can get a lot of value out of that and then showcase that value as a way to be able to expand the discipline further. So there, the great news is, is that there isn't that huge barrier to entry, um, but it's all about thinking about what can you do today. I would echo that, you know, in I find that uh, most people want a tool and, and like a lot of people like are like, Aaron, why is Chaos Slinger no longer available? I'm no longer United Health Group. <laughs> so that, that's, uh, you know, that was part of that equation. They use it internally. They have their own version now that they run. But there are a bunch of tools coming. I do encourage people to keep watching for updates on GitHub uh, because I do know a bunch of people writing some tools for Kubernetes in, in this space. Containers is a huge growth area for security chaos engineering. The problem is, is that engineers need the flexibility to change. Engineers are constantly changing things within the environment, and the security controls are context dependent. If things are changing in the environment, the security control is not understanding that that thing changed. It's not going to reflect the appropriate alignment to the thing it's supposed to secure to begin with. So it's that feedback loop is missing, and where. People are using security chaos engineering a lot in the container space. But I would just encourage the people in general, chaos engineering, don't think like multiple step kind of complicated attacks. I mean, think it's very simple. Start very simple, very small. Like Jamie said, like it could be a bash script. It could be a simple Python script to open a bucket or to close a bucket or to open or close a port. It's just you're trying to create a signal in the system and understand how it reverberates, the, 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 do the expectations uh, that you have and assumptions about your security hold true? You have to remember in today's modern software, especially in the cloud, cloud type environments are where most people are doing chaos engineering. And these environments are massive and they're changing constantly. If you start introducing a bunch of complicated changes simultaneously, it gets very difficult to understand, hey, what the heck even happened? You know, just just garbage in, garbage out a little bit. If you make too many changes at one time, you know, what you want to understand, because you're, like I said before, because you're being proactive, we're not worried about a breach. We're not worried about get that thing back up and running. We're losing money. We're not worried. Nobody's worried about being blamed, named, or shamed as a part of making a mistake, right? We're doing it proactively to understand where the problem is. I just, I echo what Jamie said. Start small, keep it simple, but use the output uh, from a small, simple experiment to communicate the value of it.
thank you so much for hopping on the mics and giving us a master class on chaos engineering. This couldn't have been more perfect for Hacker Valley Blue, Noah thyself. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the great things that you have going on, what are the best ways that people can do that? Let's start with you, Jamie. I can be found on Twitter at Jamie underscore Dickon. And I post a little bit about uh, security chaos engineering, uh, application security, and other just interactions between how security professionals can interact with other dev teams, IT teams, and the like. Uh, and for me, uh, you can also find me on Twitter. Uh, my DMs are open, so hit me up uh, at, at A-A-R-O-N-R-I-N-E-H-A-R-T. I'm pretty uh, open on LinkedIn. I have trouble catching up with LinkedIn messages sometimes. I, uh, and my email is A-A-R-O-N at V-E-R-I-C-A dot I-O. He said it. DMs are open. So we are going to put all of you two's information in the show notes so everyone can stay up to date with you and all the things that you're working on. Aaron, Jamie, it's been a pleasure to speak and we'll see everyone next time. Thank you. Thank you. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.